Well, good morning, podcasters, and welcome to another fun-filled episode of our Banking Litigation Podcast. This morning, we're joined, as ever, by Alice behind the glass. Good morning, Alice. Getting a wave. And um, our super-duper senior associate, Ajay Malhotra, um, who has practiced in just about every area of banking litigation imaginable. Good morning, Ajay. Morning, Tom. Morning, and good morning to my co-host, Kerry, as well. How are you, Kerry? Yeah, well, thank you, John. How are you doing? I'm very well. Looking forward to your Spanish pronunciations in about one minute. Uh, Well, we're kicking off this morning's episode by reflecting on an interesting judgment from the Supreme Court. Kerry is going to walk us uh, through um, a cutting-edge development on the principle of reflective loss. Is that right, Kerry? Uh, Yeah, reflecting. I see what you've done there, John. Uh, Yes, indeed. So this is the eagerly anticipated judgment from the Supreme Court in Sevilla and Marex, which brings much needed clarity to uh, the area on so-called reflective loss. So, And could you just give a quick reminder, Kerry, of what the, the principle is? I'm sure everybody knows, but if you could just re- refresh it, that would be helpful. Yeah, of course. So the reflective loss principle prevents shareholders from bringing a claim on the basis of any fall in the value of their shares or distributions, which is the consequence of loss sustained by the company, where the company has a cause of action against the same wrongdoer. It was first established in a case called Prudential and Newman Industries. And Kerry, this came up in the recent high-profile case of Lloyds and HBOS. Um, and it's any loss suffered by shareholders because of a fall in price of the Lloyds shares was reflective of what the company's loss would have been. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Ajay. So this was, it, it was an obiter comment um, by the judge, but it, um, it, it would have been one of the reasons why the shareholder class action in Lloyds uh, would have failed. So it's definitely an interesting decision for listed financial institutions. And um, so to come back to the facts of Marex, the claim was brought by a creditor of the company, Marex, which uh, had entered into certain contracts with two companies that were owned and controlled by Mr. Sevilleja. Mr. Sevilleja entered into various dealings, which resulted in the assets being stripped from the companies and the companies going insolvent. In the context of a jurisdictional challenge, Mr. Sevilleja argued that Marx's claim was barred as the loss it suffered was reflective of the losses suffered by the companies. Now, just to highlight, this was not a claim that was being brought, obviously, by a shareholder, but rather by a creditor. And a number of past judgments um, have, in fact, found that the reflective loss principle could be extended to the creditor situation. But in those previous situations, the creditor was also a shareholder. Um, So the problem was that this started to make uh, the law in this area really rather complicated and there were lots of exceptions to the rule um, and the scope really for the rule uh, to be extended further still in a way that has been likened to a legal version of Japanese knotweed. We we have Dorset Old Peculiar or Old Dorset Peculiar I think it's called down here Kerry. I knew you'd have a Dorset-related comment to make, John. (laughs) Uh, So uh, the question which made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court was whether the rule against reflective loss can, in fact, extend to situations outside shareholder claims. And the Supreme Court unanimously held that the principle should be applied no wider than to shareholders and specifically does not extend to prevent claims brought by creditors. 
the Supreme Court didn't sing from the same hymn sheet in all the issues in this case, did it? Is that right? You're quite right. The court was divided on the rationale for the reflective loss principle. That's quite unusual to see such a division at the Supreme Court on an issue like this, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. So the decision does bring much needed clarity, but it's certainly a tricky issue. The majority found that this rule is a bright line legal rule of company law, which applies only to companies and their shareholders. And this all harks back to the old rule in Foss and Harbottle that the only person um, who can seek relief for an injury done to a company where the company has a cause of action is the company itself. So the majority saw a distinction between cases on the one hand where a shareholder brings a claim in respect of loss from a diminution in share value and where the company has a cause of action against the same wrongdoer. And on the other hand, cases where claims are brought by a shareholder or anyone else where the company also has a right of action in respect of substantially the same loss. The majority held that the reflective loss rule only applies to cases of the first type. And this was the type of situation in the original case of Prudential. The second kind of case is different because there's no correlation between the value of the company's assets or profits and the loss that the party has suffered. This is the situation Marek's was in. And what about the minority view, Kerry? So the minority, which included Lady Hale, my daughter's favourite judge, uh, disappeared with the idea or the need for a bright line legal rule. Just there on Lady Hale, um, she has, there's a brilliant book about her called Equal to Everything, Judge Brenda in the Supreme Court, which is why she's my daughter's favourite judge. I'd highly recommend it for anyone who's got an eight-year-old child. Um, anyway. Getting back to the point, um, so the minority view view basically saw Prudential as simply setting out the court's reasoning as to why the shareholder had in fact suffered no loss in that particular case and didn't lay down any sort of proper legal rule. The minority saw the principle much more as a device to avoid double recovery, so it was viewed more as a question that would come up on damages and, as I say, not a legal rule. But anyway, the minority said that if the reflective loss rule was appropriate, it would not extend to the creditor, so to a creditor, so the outcome was the same. Um, it's just interesting to see that sort of division in our highest court. And I, th- I think it's fair to say that the old Dorset peculiar, not tweed, whatever you want to use, has been untangled but not quite killed off. Is that fair? Yeah, exactly. And that hilarious wordplay is included in our blog post on this decision. A link is in the show notes. And you can thank Banking Lit partner Harry Edwards for that one. Thank you, Kerry. Uh, Moving on to our next uh, section. Um, We're in August now, and many of the podcasters will be thinking longingly of summer vacations abroad. Um, The next segment may feature Wonderlust and take on uh, an international voyage to Venezuela and Switzerland. Ajay, can you tell us about these cases which have been conspicuously labelled as international? Yes, and I'm not sure Venezuela would be at the top of anyone's holiday list right now um, for political reasons, which I will go into. Um, uh, So the first case I wanted to discuss was one which has been widely reported in the mainstream media and in the legal press recently, and it is Banco Central de Venezuela and the Bank of England. There's a brief bit of background before we delve into the legal points. The Bank of England is holding approximately two billion US dollars worth of Venezuelan gold on behalf of the Central Bank of Venezuela, which I'm going to call BCV. 
The political situation in Venezuela at the moment is, to say the least, turbulent. There's a widely publicised dispute as to who is the legitimate president of Venezuela. Mr. Nicolas Maduro, who claims to have won the 2018 election, or Mr. Juan Guido, who claims the 2018 election was flawed on the basis that it was corrupt. Mr. Guido claims that he is the interim president of Venezuela. This political split has resulted in two different rival boards, both claiming to represent the BCV, one allegedly appointed by Mr. Maduro and the other allegedly appointed by Mr. Guido. Both claim to be able to give instructions in relation to the BCV's assets, and the Bank of England received conflicting instructions from the Maduro board and the Guido board. When it requested further evidence of authority from the Maduro board, the Maduro board sued the Bank of England for anticipatory breach of contract and a court order requiring the Bank of England to comply with instructions given by the Maduro board to withdraw and to sell the gold. The Maduro board sought expedition of the claim on the basis that funds were urgently needed to fund a humanitarian relief program in Venezuela to combat COVID-19. So what did the Bank of England do in response, Haji? Well, the Bank of England brought a stakeholder application under the CPR Part 86, also known as an interpleader application, and they obtained a stay of proceedings. Part 86 is a seldom used part of the CPR, but it's a helpful way for financial institutions to seek the court's guidance where there are competing claims to the same funds. So this case is slightly unusual compared to part 86 applications that we've seen before in that it essentially boils down to a question of international law is that is that right yeah that's right and that is one of the peculiar peculiarities of this case so the questions for the court were in short firstly which of the maduro or guido uh, governments the uk government recognized as the leader of venezuela which, as you say, is a matter of international law and UK government policy. The second question was whether the English court was able to consider the validity and or constitutionality under Venezuelan law of acts carried out by Mr Guido, or whether it must regard those acts as being acts of a foreign state, foreign acts of state rather, and therefore valid and effective without inquiry. I'll skip over all the details there and jump straight to the conclusion, which is that the court said the UK government has unequivocally recognised Mr Guido as president of Venezuela and that the court had to follow the recognition pursuant to the one voice doctrine. According to that doctrine, the court must not inquire further into whom the UK government chooses to recognise as having executive authority. Therefore, the laws passed by Mr Guido were effective. This is, however, subject to appeal. So although although the Part 86 application was a helpful way to focus the court's attention on determining whose instructions the Bank of England should follow, the case has not yet been concluded. We've actually got some breaking news in relation to this case, which is that the Court of Appeal is going to hear the Maduro Board's appeal of this decision in September. So we'll wait for that to come out and update you, no doubt. A very interesting case. Thanks uh, for that, uh, Aji. Uh, and as ever, we have a blog post on that one too. Um, and you're going to give us a rundown on the second case as well. That's right. Uh, and my second case is Target Rich and Forex Capital Markets. 
It's particularly interesting at the moment with the turmoil we've seen coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, because one of the side issues the court considered was whether force majeure clauses can be engaged by market volatility. The market volatility in this case was the Swiss, Swiss flash crash in 2015, which affected the claimant who had certain euro Swiss franc trades open. The claimant brought a claim against the defendant because of a delay in closing out stop loss orders or SLOs on its trading platform, which should have protected the claimant against losses caused by a drop in the euro Swiss franc rate. The court dismissed the claim on other grounds, but it did consider obiter whether the force majeure clause in the agreement would have been engaged by the Swiss flash crash. And interestingly, it held that the Swiss flash crash would have been caught by the force majeure clause in the agreement. That's very interesting, um, actually, Ajay, because whenever I think about force majeure and, fr and frustration, in fact, um, I generally work on the basis that market turmoil won't engage them. But I suppose that's the thing about force majeure. It all depends on what the contract says. So, so what was the clause here? Yeah, that's exactly right, Kerry. It all depends on what the contract says. So the force majeure clause included a reference to an exceptional market event. And this was defined here as, and I will quote this, um, the suspension, closure, regulation, imposition of limits, special or unusual terms, excessive movements, volatility or loss of liquidity in any relevant market or underlying instrument, or where the company reasonably believes that any of the above circumstances are about to occur. Yeah, I suppose with words like excessive movements and volatility in the market, it would have been quite difficult to argue that the Swiss flash crash was not caught. Exactly, I agree. So in my view, the case serves as a healthy reminder that force majeure clauses are contractual provisions and therefore the parameters of the clause depend upon what the parties have agreed. The wording in this agreement was pretty strong in, it, in indicating that the clause was intended to capture severe market fluctuations. It's a very helpful uh, reminder, especially of the, as you've identified, Adji, the, the fact that force majeure does not mean one thing um, in every case. I, I think we've got a blog post in this decision as well. That's right, as ever. And it goes into more detail on the reasons why the claim were ult was ultimately dismissed. So if that piqued your interest, then it's definitely worth a read. Thank you very much. Well, from Venezuela and Switzerland back to um, good old England and a more traditional classification of cases, we'll be finishing today's podcast with a quick fire round on procedure, three cases. Uh, up first, we have the case of Rowan Ingenious Media. Um, our attentive podcasters will notice that this is an ongoing piece of litigation that we've mentioned before. Uh, you'll recall that these are the claims brought by investors in the Ingenious Media Film Partnerships, which were uh, subsequently found by HMRC to be tax avoidance schemes. The investors uh, in those partnerships are pursuing many of the different characters involved in the schemes, including the banks who advanced the loans for the investments, as well as the financial advisors to the claimant investors. This latest decision arose in the context of a disclosure application and will be of interest to financial services uh, providers generally, as it shows that the courts are willing to uh, encourage disclosure of an investor's investment history in claims of this type. 
Now, if memory serves me correctly and prompted by your, your helpful recap of the facts, John, these claims include both advisory and non-advisory claims. So do the court order disclosure of investment history information in relation to both or just the advisory bucket? It was actually both, Kerry. Um, I think it's fairly clear to see why the claimant's investments are relevant to the advisory claims, which is what I think you were getting at. Um, those are those claims relating to the suitability um, of the schemes for the claimants. The claimant's investment history will give insight into their general financial sophistication and appetite for risk, which could be relevant. On the other hand, the central point in the non-advisory claims is that the defendants allegedly misrepresented the ingenious schemes. The court said it was less apparent how a claimant's appetite for risk or experience with other investments can affect the question of whether or not a misrepresentation was made and relied on. However, the court accepts that in principle, it should be open to the defendants to show that a claimant would have invested in another scheme, which would have failed, had they not invested in the ingenious schemes. So in other words, whether any alleged misrep actually caused any loss, this is relevant. So in that regard, disclosure of the claimant's investment history um, is very relevant, and the court ordered disclosure in both types of claim. That certainly sounds like a helpful decision for financial institutions resisting mis-selling claims. Indeed, and we've got a blog post on this one for anyone who would like um, some further details, and there is, as ever, a link in the show notes. On to a more uh, logistical challenge in the next case. Um, my next case is um, on procedural matters uh, again, and it's Stanley against um, London Borough of Tower Hamlets. Uh, it's very current. This one's particularly, particularly relevant uh, at the moment with the practical issues arising out of COVID. Uh, the issue that the court looked at was service for claim form uh, at offices, which were closed due to the lockdown, and it arose in the context of an application to set aside default judgment. The court held that there was good reason to set aside the default judgment under CPR 13.3.1 because it was not fair or reasonable for the claimant's solicitor to have served the claim by post without first taking steps to check that there would be somebody, um, that it would come to the defendant's attention. That sounds like a pretty aggressive stance by the claimant, given the current environment. So perhaps not that surprising a decision. Yeah, well, indeed. Uh, And I think this case serves as a warning to parties that the court may not look kindly in parties who enter default judgment following service on empty uh, offices during the disruption uh, opportunistically. Yeah, it seems like there's a practical point as well here. Businesses can't rely on this always being the outcome. And with working from home practices becoming more settled, businesses would be well advised to ensure they have procedures in place to check for important documents like this being sent to the office, even when it's closed. I presume we have a blog post on this one as well. Yes, indeed we do. Uh, And there's a link uh, in the show notes. Mm, Fab. So do you want to tell us about your third case then, John? Yeah, third and final one, Kerry. Thank you very much. The final case is on costs, uh, in particular, an interesting case on the Part 36 offer and whether it constitutes a genuine offer to settle. The case is Raw Bank against Travelex, where the claimant sued for breach of contract, uh, but then advanced a Part 36 offer, which was very nearly the total amount of the claim. Uh, it was, in fact, just 0.3% less than the total claim value. 
And this was a claimant offer. Um, so presumably the claimant was hoping to take advantage of the rules around indemnity costs, enhanced interest and the additional sum. Exactly. As you say, uh, these are the cost consequences under uh, Part 36.17.4, where the defendant rejects the claimant's offer, but then subsequently loses at trial. The defendant took issue with this and argued that the claimant's offer was a tactical move designed solely to engage those provisions, uh, but was not a genuine attempt to settle the case. The High Court rejected the defendant's position, and even though the claimant only conceded 0.3%. This was a case where it was almost certain of succeeding at trial, not least because the defendant hadn't really advanced a defence at all. So even though it was a small concession by the claimant, the offer was still capable of being characterised as a genuine offer of settlement. It it might be an extreme example, of course, um, and every case will turn on its own facts. But it's interesting, I think, nevertheless, to see a case where an offer such as this is found to be valid where the defendant has no real defence and is simply seeking to delay the entry of judgment against us. Anyway, um, I found it interesting. I hope you did uh, as well, uh, podcasters. Um, Thank you for tuning in to another episode. I I hope the broad array of uh, uh, cases we've talked about today has has ever whetted your appetite. Thanks in particular to our guest speaker, Ajay, for giving us a rundown of those very interesting cases. Uh, and to Alice uh, behind the glass for making all this happen. And Kerry, my co-host, thank you very much for another wonderful session. Uh, Enjoy your holidays, podcasters, whether that's amongst the Dorset Old Peculiar or otherwise. We look forward to speaking to you again in the autumn. Goodbye.